chapter 3. <clears throat> For those of you who have studied the Bible, uh, you will recognize that John has been writing this. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to apologize for my scratchy throat. I have been uh, struggling with this week uh, a severe cold. I think I'm through the worst of it. Uh, Cindy is at home with bronchitis, and so uh, she is... Uh, she is watching online to make sure that I preach appropriately. She's going to let me know when I get home. <clears throat> but I, uh, <clears throat> I do want you to be aware that as we look in the Gospel of John, John has been writing this Gospel to you that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. And that's the purpose that John has written his Gospel, that you might believe in Christ. Now, <clears throat> he has done this in light of the fact that we live in a world that doesn't believe in God through Jesus Christ. And so as you live your life following the Lord, you become more and more unique and different from the world. You stand out. You stick out. Some people will, will consider you odd or different in, in ways that they wonder why you don't do things like they do or enjoy things like they enjoy. And so as John writes this gospel, he is now at the place in chapter 15 where those who study the gospel of John have labeled it the second discourse of Jesus. In other words, the, the teaching that John gives us that Christ gave the disciples before he went to the cross. The first discourse was chapter 14, and it dealt with, <clears throat> excuse me, it dealt with the whole business of Jesus being the way of salvation. Remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was the first discourse. That was where Jesus was teaching the disciples that, that what God had determined before the creation of the world was now being fulfilled in him. That he was going to be the very vessel through which now God would establish forgiveness for all sins. And he would make an atonement for everyone so that they could be reconciled to God. In chapter 15, we come to the second discourse, and it deals with the secrets of what this new relationship that God is giving through Jesus Christ will be like. In other words, the relationship that the Israelites had in the Old Testament was based on faith, but it was a faith that was looking forward to an event that would become for us the cross where Christ would become that lamb sacrificed for our sins. But now Jesus has come, and he's getting ready to accomplish what all of the Old Testament had taught that God would do in order to redeem his people. And as he does this and completes it, he is now preparing the disciples for what will come once his work of the cross has been accomplished. I want to ask if you'll stand with me as we hear the word of God this morning. We're going to be reading from, uh, from the, <clears throat> excuse me. We're going to be reading from the 15th chapter of the, uh, of the book of the Gospel of John. And I'm going to ask if the people in the slides, if you would advance this for me as I read it, it would help me. <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also 
remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his, mas his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that wherever you, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of God. <coughs> when you and I think about the the Christian life, the Christian life is supposed to be, as we read it from the Bible, a life of joy. And you think, okay, well, what, is, what does that mean? It means basically it's a selfless feeling, selfless, it's not focused on you, it's not focused on making sure you're happy or making sure all your needs are met. It's a sense that you are at peace and that you are at peace with the way life has been given to you. Happiness is based on experience. And it's based on what various fleeting moments that we have of being happy. Like, I'm really happy when my wife cooks me uh, white chocolate macadamia nut cookies and I go home. That makes me happy. That doesn't give me joy. Joy. Joy comes when I look at her and know that she loves me and that we're committed in a relationship to working through our problems. Whether there's high or low, bad or good, we are in it together and we're committed to one another. That brings joy, doesn't it? And so when you think about the joy that comes in a relationship with God, it is a joy that God meant for you from the creation of the world. 
In other words, God had created you to walk with a sense of joy before him. He had created you for the purpose that through his mighty works that you would find the the ground to walk on, the strength to live life, the energy to go through each day, not coming from yourself, which would be based upon what makes you happy, but based upon joy, that is what he gives and what he provides and what he has ordained for you. And so when you and I begin to think about this discourse, you're going to see in chapter 15 three particular sections that Jesus is going to deal with because he's going to the cross and he's been with them physically for three years. They were happy and they were sad when he was there. Now he's going to introduce joy to their life. You see, he was happy or they were happy when they saw him do the miracles and they were happy when they saw him teach the, the throngs of people that were coming because they felt like, okay, this is it. This is the one that's come and the Messiah's here. And man, it's going to be nothing but gravy and biscuits from here on out. Or whatever you like to eat that you, you think is good. But when the news came to them that Jesus was going to surrender his life for them, their happiness evaporated. And it would be replaced by a joy. He, per, he gives them the teaching in three ways. We'll be dealing today with chapter 15, 1 through 17, which deals with Jesus explaining what they are going to be doing when the joy becomes av- available to them. He's going to be talking about, more than anything else, this important factor that the crucial thing that God wants to give Okay, put that up for me. Thank you. The crucial thing that God wants to give is their understanding that their relationship with God is going to dramatically change from that point where they walked with him for three years to the place where he will be resurrected and he will be glorified. And so in light of that, when you look at these three passages, you find first in chapter 15, 1 through 17, what we'll be discussing today. Next Sunday, you'll see that we'll be reading through chapter 15, verses 18 through 16, 4. And it's the cost of that they will have to pay in order to follow this mission that Jesus is giving. And you say, well, that's not happy. No, it's not. It's joy. You see, the mission that God has given the church is the mission of spreading the gospel. And in spreading it, the joy comes when we are faithful in spreading that gospel and we see lives transformed, not because of something we have done, but because something God has done in someone's life. His name was Kevin Murdoch. He was a, he was a, <clears throat> he was a roommate of mine at the Citadel our first year. And I'll never forget the moment where I wanted to tell him about Jesus, but I wasn't sure how to do it. I was scared out of my mind that I wouldn't say it right. And so I just lived with him. And and when he asked asked questions, I would answer them. And I I went through the whole semester praying that Kevin would come to know Christ. And it never happened until that that, uh, summer following that semester, I got a phone call at home. And he said, Bob, don't call me Bob, by the way. That's what he called me. He said, Bob, I want to tell you that I've come to receive Christ. And all I could think about was, man, how did that happen? You know, I thought it was up to me. And he said, I, I, I've been listening to your answers and your question, the questions that I've given to you about your faith, and it's caused me to realize that I need Christ. I need God's forgiveness for my sins. How did this awareness come in his life? It came because of the cost of living for Christ each day. 
There were things that I lived and did and said and followed because of my love for Christ. And when Kevin saw that in my life, he began to ask questions. There's a cost. Thirdly, we're going to see in chapter 16, verse 5 through 3, that that cost that we give will also be supplied with God's great resources in order to carry it through. Sometimes we feel so inadequate, don't we? Sometimes we feel so inadequate to follow Christ. We don't feel like we have the strength or the power to obey him, to love him, to put him first. And Jesus is going to teach us about the resources we have. So this morning I want to deal with that first topic of this discourse. It's, I, I would love to preach on all of that, a chapter and a half. Um, would you give me till about 3 o'clock? Would that be okay? Can I hear an amen? Uh, does that mean I have permission? No. No, no, y'all are looking at me like, oh, okay, uh, uh. all right, we'll only deal with this particular passage, the first verse through the 17th verse. Please notice, first of all, when Jesus is talking about what is going to transpire, he's talking about a mission. He's talking about a mission. And if you look in the first two verses, there is some, tr some important background information you need to understand what Christ is teaching here. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. Why, why not just the vine? I am the true vine, meaning every vine representation in the Bible that came before him did not meet God's expectation, but he is. And I'm, and my father is the gardener. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, the, the image of the vine is so important because it really was a supreme symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. If you go back to, to passages of Scripture like Psalm 80, this, this tremendous psalm, Psalm 80, is a powerful psalm where the people of God in the Old Testament are recognizing that though they have endeavored in their own strength to live up to God's requirements of being God's representatives in the world, they did not do it faithfully. They did not complete the task that God had given for them. That they, they wavered. When, 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 when circumstances happened and they were looking for happiness instead of joy, they would gravitate toward things that they thought would solve their problem, but the problem could only be solved by God. And instead of trusting and obeying the Lord, they would substitute some other plan B, and plan B never worked out. I'll give you an example. When they came into the promised land, and they, they were told by God if they would, they would love him and serve him and worship him, they would never have to worry about their enemies. Their crops would always fill their needs. They would have blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But the day they turned away from the Lord, they would experience curse. And so as they turned away from the Lord, generations later, the children upon the children upon the children turned away from the Lord, they began to experience great hardship. And they looked around at all the nations around them and they said, you know, oh, Edom looks like he's doing real well and Ammon looks like they're doing real well. Maybe we should be like them. And so they said, we need a king. And God says, wait a minute, I am your king. And they said, well, yeah, but we want a, a real king, a, a, a flesh and blood king. And so God said, all right, fine, I'll give you a king. But here's what's the cost in plan B. And sure enough, it happened just like God told them. Plan B didn't work out for plan A. 
The amazing thing is it didn't stop God's work. In fact, if you go to Psalm 80, the Psalm 80 is a cry from the heart of a people who have tried to live for God in their own strength and in their own power and failed miserably. And all they're doing is crying out to God, God, restore us. God, restore your people. And in verse 17 of chapter 80 of Psalms, he sa- it says, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. This is a prophecy about Jesus, by the way. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will turn away from, then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Lord, God Almighty, restore us. You hear it? The passion? They recognized that the reason that they had failed is because they had put plan B into effect instead of putting plan A, which is putting God first. The most amazing thing about this is that particular verse is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the true vine. I am the right-hand man that God has sent to fulfill this in you. And when I come and I'm delivered over and crucified and resurrected, at that moment you will be able to follow Christ the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? You say, well, all right, let's go. Right? I know some of y'all Yankee fans were watching the TV last night against the Astros. Any, any amens out there? Bunch of crickets. That's not going to be a good illustration. I won't use it. Okay. Anyway, um, I, I won't go that direction, but I will say this. When you and I begin to think about what it means to follow God faithfully, many of you have deceived yourself to thinking that living a good life is abiding in Jesus, and that's not it. You may use the, what I call the church measure of comparison, where you look over and you say, well, I'm much better than that person, so I must be doing okay. That's a horrible way to measure whether you're abiding in God. The truth is, when you and I begin to think about this whole purpose of Israel, Israel was sent into the world to represent God faithfully. They were to be the voice of God among a dark world that needed to know who the one true God is. And in light of that, that image of the mission is that that vine, which is essentially a utilitarian plant, say that twice, it exists to bear fruit. That was the reason God called Abraham and the children of Israel They were to bear fruit, a fruit that came from inside that led to joy and peace with God, and it would lead to a life of godliness that was not out of obligation because we have to, but it was a life of pleasing God because we love God. Let me ask you where you are in your your walk with Christ this morning. Did you come here because you have to? Really? Really? You open your Bible because you have to. You take time to pray because you have to. You're not walking in joy. 
you're looking for happiness. You're looking for God to make you happy. And I want you to know God doesn't work with his people in that way. He wants to give you something more lasting. He wants to give you the joy that comes from him. And so when you and I begin to work through this, we begin to say, okay, if then joy is the goal of our life, then why am I not walking in joy today? Maybe you are. I hope you are. Another image that's important is when you think about joy, our joy is being in the presence of the Lord. That's where joy comes from. It is walking before God in a relationship where we know him, we love him, and we believe him and trust him. And the only place you find where that was continually done is when Jesus came in the flesh. Or you go all the way back to Genesis where Adam and Eve were in the garden before they disobeyed God. Those are the only two places. The interesting part is that when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth, and John was writing this gospel to explain this. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he was looking at a temple that they had built that was a temporary house that represented God's presence among his people. That temple was modeled on what was given to the Israelites way back in the Exodus in Deuteronomy where God gave them a tabernacle. It was a tent. And in both the temple and the tent, there were courts or sections. They had the section for the women, the section for the men, the section for the priests, and then finally they had a section that no one could enter except one time a year, and only one person could enter called the high priest. And that one section, which was in inside every other section, was the holiest of holies. It represented the presence of God, and no one could go in there except the high priest. And God gave that temple, that tabernacle, as a way of bringing hope to people that their joy in life was present. But that God would have to do something in them to help them take hold of what he had prepared. They could not do it. Jesus says, I am the true vine. You can forget about the temple. You don't need it anymore. You can forget about the tabernacle. You don't need it anymore. Why? Because the presence of the Holy One is among you. And he is among you this morning. Do you know what Jesus is preparing the disciples to hear? God will not make his habitation in a building any longer. This is why we call this a meeting house and not a sanctuary. God will make his presence in the hearts of those who come to him. I could show you thousands of passages where Jesus has taught that anyone who receives him, he will come into them and give them a new heart and a new soul. And so when you think of the temple of the Lord, the church, those who believe in Jesus Christ are now endowed with the Spirit of God 
so that they are the dwelling place of God in the world. That's why Paul, Peter writes in his letter, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. what are the secrets then to this abiding? How do, I, how do I get a hold of the joy that God wants for my life? How do I walk in this relationship that Christ has prepared for me? Well, the first is, more importantly, that he identifies four things that must be accompanied a person who understands this new relationship. These principles that he gives for how we maintain, grow in, express imbibe, enjoy God's presence. What are those things that we need? Well, first he identifies that this, this mission, this, this whole purpose of birthing the church in the world, this whole purpose of God becoming flesh and walking among us and then being crucified, dead and buried and ascended into heaven and now giving the Holy Spirit to those who would receive him that these people who are called by his name, will now give witness to the world that there is a God and he's created you to love you and save you from the penalties of your sins and to deliver you from the darkness of this world. And the first one is the pruning that must happen. Notice in verse 2 and 3, Jesus says, the father who is the gardener in verse 1 he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Well, why would he do this? So that it will be even more fruitful. You get it? I just took Cindy a couple of weeks ago to a winemaking class. Uh, Sally Jones and Cindy are bootleggers. Y'all didn't know that, did you? They've been making wine from grapes that are in our yard, and they, they have done a spectacular job. You have also partaken of that wine. Did you know? Did you know? You've been supporting this bootlegging industry by the communion that we've had in this church because that's where that wine has come from. It's delicious, isn't it? Well, the most amazing thing in that class is as I was talking with the guy who was teaching us, he said, you have to prune the vines in order them for, for them to be fruitful. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, there are some growth you don't want even though it looks like it's healthy. It looks like it's supposed to be there. It looks like it's supposed to be part of the vine. He says, you have to cut it off. And I said, why? He says, because it's a distraction to the production of the fruit. And I thought, oh, wow, isn't that something? You see, the Father wants to cut out of your life that are things that are distractions to producing the fruit of godliness in your life. And so when you think of abiding in Christ, let me tell you, if you're cheating on your income taxes, you are not abiding in Christ. If you are cheating on your spouse, you are not abiding in Christ. If you are watching pornography, you are not abiding in Christ. You're not loving your spouse and leading them in prayer together, abiding in Christ. And this is why you feel so dry and joyless. You hear it? But the Father, out of his great love for you, 
was to come in and prune the shoots that would distract you from the fruit he wants to produce in you. Notice where the fruit is produced. It is produced on the branches, but where does the strength for the fruit come from? It comes from the vine. Isn't that powerful? And so this father that we have in heaven who loves us, oh man, if you could understand the love of God for you, you'd be saying to him right now, Lord, cut it off. Cut it off, Lord. Take it. Why? Because you know he's doing it out of love. He loves you. The second thing that's important, and I'm, I'm getting long, and I don't want to wear out my three hours of sermon that you said I could preach. The, the second thing he says is that in verse 4, he says that you must remain in me. Now, that, that, that goes along with what we've already talked about, but please notice in verse 4 and 5, Jesus spells out completely, remain in me and I will remain in you. Here's the, here's the stark reality. No branch. How many branches? No branch can bear fruit by itself. And I talk to Christians all the time who are not studying the Bible with other people, not praying with other people, not coming to church, not doing this, and they think, well, I'm doing just fine. But they're not abiding in Christ. Why aren't they abiding in Christ? Well, I I've talked to a cousin of mine who said, I don't need to go to church. I can watch it online. It's wonderful. You can. I said, let me ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, where is your life in holiness right now? Is there anything that you would stand before God and be embarrassed over that he would see? Anything? Not a word. One of the first things that happens, by the way, with your Christian life is that the devil wants to separate you from anything that will encourage you to trust Christ. Cindy and I love to burn things. We have a burn pit in our yard. And one of the things that's really quite powerful is to see how logs, when you put them together, they will start burning. I mean, it, it is a powerful thing to see how these logs reflect the heat off each other, and they will just be... You know the best way to put out a fire? Separate the logs. Just separate them one from the other. I believe that is what has happened to the church in the last three years. People have forsaken the fellowship that would help them walk in the joy of Christ. Some of you, some of you are, have gotten that. Please forgive me. Some of you have gotten that recline and retire idea. sapping the joy of God. Somebody else will take care of it. No. No, that's not Jesus' plan. He wants you to be a part of his plan. That's why he says, remain in me. And I in you. Remain. There's a chance you could walk away. There's a chance you could cut off the wrong branch that's producing the fruit 
The third thing is that Jesus is pointing out that for the secret of abiding, he wants you and I to understand the power of prayer. And I dare say that we have become a prayerless people because we don't see the results we want. And so we say, well, that didn't work. Prayer is not about happiness. It's about joy. Happiness is based on external things that make us feel good. Prayer is that discipline where we come to God surrendering our wills and our hearts to him, asking him to do what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to love him and obey him and to love others. <clears throat> it's really quite powerful, isn't it? I mean, none of us feel qualified to pray. I go home to be with my family, and, and every Christmas it's like this, you know, we, or, or during the beach vacation we have every year. We'll have about 16 people in the family gather together, and it's time to eat a meal. And you know who they, they, they say, okay, we come to that awkward moment where the meal's on the table, you know, everything's ready to eat, and then everybody's like, okay, we got a preacher in the family. I guess we better ask him. And they're like, you will ask him. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. And then suddenly they go, okay, Robert, would you pray for us? And I said, no, sorry, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on vacation. No prayers today. And they all look like deer in the headlights. It's like, well, who's going to pray? One of the problems that comes in missing the joy of God is that we think that someone else can get closer to God than we can. So if we get them to pray for us, that somehow God listens. Let me tell you, if you know Christ... You have a high priest who not only helps you pray, he is praying for you right now. He is praying for you. What is he praying? That you will trust him and love him and obey him. He's praying that you would allow the Father to trim the branches from you that would distract you from the fruit he wants to produce in you. And let me tell you, there is no greater distraction to that truth than this. The technology we have today, it can be used for good or evil. It is now overwhelmingly becoming the most evil influence in our culture. And it is sapping our generation of any spiritual truth. Thirdly and fourthly and finally, you've been so patient. Fourthly and finally, here, here's the, the fourth thing that Jesus gives as the secret to this new relationship that he's giving us. And that is the, that this, this tremendous work of God is important only in that we understand that this secret is to love as we have loved, or been loved, I should say. What do I mean by that? When we look back at the record of the disciples before the resurrection, these were a bunch of guys who were competing with each other to see who could get closest to Jesus. Did you know that? They were trying to see. In fact, two of them had their mom come to Jesus and say to Jesus, when you get to your place on the throne, and you know how mamas are, right? Y'all know that. I want Jesus, you to put my son, James and John, on each side of you. You hear it? 
manipulation. That was going on through all uh, 12 of them, even Judas. And the most amazing thing is that the relationship that they were going to have in light of the promise that was going to be fulfilled in Christ going to the cross is that they would learn a new way of living that would be based on loving others, not based upon what they give me, but doing it because I have been loved by God. And there is the secret behind the ability of Christians to love their enemies. It is not because we're good people. We're not. It's not because we're morally select. We're not. It is because we have understood how much we have been loved by a God who had no reason to love me because I'm an adulterer, I'm a thief, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I am an idolater. I take his name in vain. And God, out of his great mercy, loved me brought me from the darkness into the light. And if that truth gets a hold of you, you can never look at another person the same way. The same God who gave himself on the cross for your sins is the same God who has now given you the Holy Spirit that through that power of the Holy Spirit, you might love people unconditionally, not expecting them to return love to you. I want this joy. Well, there's a cost to it. You have to die to yourself and take up the cross and follow Christ. I'm not talking about being good. I'm not talking about being good, doing good things. I'm talking about A relationship with a God named Jesus who is so in touch with the Father that as you get in touch with him, you become one with both of them. I don't know if you read it. Look at verse 9. Do you have your Bibles open? This is the word of God for you. As the Father has loved me, So I have loved you. Now, is that future or present or past tense? I've loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Now remain in my love. And if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and remain in his love. And I have told you this. Here it is. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be That your joy may be halfway done? No. Three quarters? No. Seven eighths? No. Thirty-one thirty-seconds? No. That your joy may be complete. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have a joy in your heart? I'm not talking about a happiness. Do you have a joy that sustains you? The good news is, this is what Christ has come to give you. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, as we begin to unpack this truth and we begin to adopt what it is to walk with God, we want to confess to you that we are not godly people. 
but we want to be. We are not loving people, but we want to be. We are not people who forsake ourselves, but we want to be. And we want to be because we know that he has given himself for us. So that as we give ourselves to him, then the joy we are searching for will be in abundance. Too much of the world right now is based upon filling our senses with things that make us happy. God, cut the branch off and let the fruit grow in me that is spoken of in your your word in Ephesians that, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. God, I need self-control because sin is close by me and wants to ravage me and rob me of the joy that you have for me today. Make me, O oh God, aware of my need of Christ. We ask and we pray it in the name of our Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and the people of God said together,